and that's what's affecting, that's why it's not burning off, is because there's a monsoon over there. So, so, yeah, and it's the wrong time of year for monsoon, so, you know, climate change. <laughs> that is true. Maybe we'll change it back one day. <laughs> yeah, but it takes That's a long time to change it back. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, 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 the, I'm, the, I'm the hopeful future guy, so, um, you know, I, uh, and, and I'm also from an area where, you know, we've seen uh, changes like I'm I'm from Pittsburgh, general area, and in my early childhood, my dad's day, Pittsburgh was horribly polluted. And um, if you went to work, even if you went to work in an office, not a steel mill, you went to work in an office in downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, it was very common for people to take two or three white shirts with them because that was the days when you wore white shirts and ties, right? And you would have to wear, you would have to take several shirts with you because the one you had in the morning was just going to to get dirty just by existing in, in the environment, um, you know, throughout the day sort of idea. So um, now Pittsburgh is a very, you know, is a clean city, water's clean, air's clean. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a nice place to, to you know, be and visit and, and work and, and that sort of thing. So, and it's a very high-tech medical, you know, the steel mills are gone. It's high-tech. It's uh, driverless cars being tested. It's it's um, uh, you know robotics that putting landers on the moon kind of businesses. It's it's one of the more advanced you know medical facilities in the world are you know often found in Pittsburgh you know sort of thing. So so I've kind of lived through that on a local city level of yeah it's like you can be destroying the environment and creating really crappy stuff and then you know the next generation comes along and and times change so that's that's kind of the internalization for me of of you know climate change on a worldwide basis it's like a problem now and we'll figure it out and things will get better uh, yeah. it doesn't mean that there won't be horror and destruction in the meantime or bad things but but it you know it's not gonna it's it, i'm firmly convinced it's not going to be the end of the world because we'll deal with it I, d I actually remember when I was a kid in California, in Southern California especially, the smog was so thick you could see it. It was brown. And when you were in an airplane, it looked like like this brown thing that was around the airplane when you, when you got to the airspace around L.A. Um, but they, they created the catalytic converter, and they have they had all kinds of new laws about uh, industrial pollution, and our air is like ninety percent clean. Which, if you grew up in Los Angeles, you never would think that. <laughs> and I don't mean like one of the things I always I, sometimes like when I hear myself talking, it sounds like I'm minimizing the problem, and and I never mean to to do that. It's like the problems with climate change are, are not something that's minimal or they're not extremely serious, but I also think oftentimes people minimize the fact that we fix things. That's what our species is good at. Um, you know, we, we find our way out of problems, and uh, you know, if you go back in the Industrial Revolution, and like, you know, just um, the idea of, of how horrible it was in England during the Industrial Revolution, and, and even Dickens' books were often written in that environment of of you know the beginning
industrialization, the beginnings of capitalism. It's like, wow, this is all inhuman. It's like, you know, and that has, no matter what you can think of all those things on any logical, measurable basis, life has improved. <laughs> and it will, you know, continue to uh, to uh, do so in the future. So I'm, I'm, I'm always hopeful that things are going to get better, and it's going to get better because people are going to take action. It's, it's uh, not just going to get better because. But. Well, it's, it's just like um, Chaplin's movie Modern Times was about industrialization, and that was done in the 20s. Um, yes. In the 1920s, not the 2020s. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with that one, yeah. Um, and the, it was, it, it's a very funny movie, but it, what the point was is that you're going to get locked in and uh, you're going to be stuck in a world that you don't want to be in and you're going to be put yourself in danger and the stuff like that. So they're still worrying about it many years after Dickens. <laughs> well, yeah, and I just learned this recently. I Speaking of old movies, just learned this recently and I thought it was really a cool revelation for me, but um, there was like the movie Metropolis, Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember the name of the producer or the director from Metropolis, but that was the the science fiction movie. Again, I think that one was silent, and it mm-hmm. was the idea of the dehumanization of of people through the uh, advancement of technology and advancement of industrialization and the the invention of robots and and that sort of thing. Um, and I didn't what I didn't realize was that um, H. G. Uh, Wells um, Things to Come, uh, which uh, now we were in the era of sound for movies and and that sort of thing, but that movie, Things to Come, was a response to Metropolis, and where they were basically saying, it's like, yeah, things are are bad, things can get bad, etc., but that's not what you, you know, humans get past that. Humans are just at the beginning stage of what they can do. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that those were actually playing off against one another, but Things to Come is is one of my favorite movies from that era because it makes such a, a bold statement about you know well you know what are we going to be as a species are we just going to be you know the little creature that lives and dies and matters no more than any other creature on Earth and has to just snatch whatever moment of happiness it can or is the universe our destiny you know which one pick one and that's that's kind of the the dramatic statement at, at the end of the at the end of the movie so. I I see Wells do that quite often. I mean, that's what Time Machine's all about too. It's the uh, about uh, polluting the uh, planet um, and war among people. And but from the pollution and the war, they had it. They ruined the planet, so you had to decide to take your chances up top or go below. And that I he he that's a big theme with him, you know. And he, but he writes so beautifully. I, uh, Time Machine is one of my favorite novels, even though it's more of a novella. Um, <laughs> it's very short. <laughs> I've read Time Machine. Um, I have to say, probably just because of nostalgia and being a kid and what I loved as a kid, uh, the George Powell movie version. Ah, of Time yes, Rod Taylor. My, my favorite, and, and <laughs> I, I like that better than the than H.G. Wells' actual novella. Which you know is is probably just a, a a childhood thing, but I like. Well, it's funny because I've heard that before. I was uh, watching. I was telling you um, in the green room. Um, I'm into BookTube now, 
and one of the people who are into classics um, grew up, like the rest of us, watching the Peter Pan animated film, and when she finally read Peter Pan, she was disappointed. So I, I think that there's a little of that element with Time Machine, because I grew up watching, um, well, first of all, I fell in love with Rod Taylor, which any woman would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was gorgeous. Um, you're like, yeah, Yvette Minio, you want to be with that man. You're a smart woman. <laughs> <laughs> I fell in love with the time machine, just saying. <laughs> it's like, that is a cool time machine. It is. It is They've the never, best time never, machine. Never been, never been surpassed. That it's is like, my... You know, if you're going to have a time machine, that's the one you want. I, I was... It's, it's wonderful steampunk sort of sort of um, uh, zeitgeist to it and, and the you know the large rotating dish on the back of it and, and the, the crystal controls and the flashing lights and stuff. It's like... That is absolutely gorgeous. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful, beautifully. It's just a gorgeous prop. I mean, it's just beautiful. And doesn't that look like the most comfortable chair you've ever seen? Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's like, it's like that's how things should be built. Yes. And then I had all this gold on it. and all, I mean, where the hell did you get all that gold? <laughs> and I like that in, in the – I love the book, so – nothing against the book, but I love that in the movie with Rod Taylor, they gave him a name. And they gave him the name from H.G. Wells. His name was George. <laughs> yes. I and, love that they, they had him the And, you know, they gave, him, they gave him a life, and they gave him friends. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I, I just love, love that movie. It's one of my favorites. I, that's, that's the top favorite to me, too. It's not just Rod Taylor. I love the movie, but it just yeah, I'll watch anything with Rod Taylor. <laughs> except, except, no, well, I, I can't say except because I actually have seen the movie. I hated it, but I've seen it. I love Hitchcock movies, but I hate the birds. <laughs> oh, I, I also have problems with the birds. Because um, as I was growing up, if it was anything like that, I, w I would watch. And I, I would think, you know, it, it was it was interesting. But um, I couldn't understand exactly why people thought the birds was scary it like there was there wasn't anything in the movie it, it as a kid and i haven't really watched it since i was pretty young but my memories of the birds are this is kind of boring why are people scared of birds <laughs> you know it's like it's like there's so many things you could do to to get rid of the birds you know uh, you know so um yeah, so so I I found the birds kind of unconvincing and unterrifying, and it's like one of those movies where there's a there's a you know paper mache or rubber monster, and the the actor who's being attacked has to do as much work as the monster to throw themselves into the monster to get eaten by the monster because the guy in the suit can barely move. Um, it felt to me like that. It's like we we really have to we really have to work it here to make sure those birds look scary. But the um, thing is, they were real birds, and they were cutting into the flesh, so. Uh. <laughs> it just, yeah, it, which is interesting because they were real birds and they and they were apparently you know really trained to do stuff and it just even so it was like unconvincing to me. Like, well, I guess I was birds. A I, don't, I don't care. They're birds. <laughs> I was a different little girl than you were, a little boy, gonna scare the crap out of me. And I love, like I said, oh, I love okay. Rod right. Taylor. Right. <laughs> well, I. I, I I can, I, you know, I. What this just reminds me of is how much, like, on the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon is afraid of birds. Like, you know. <laughs> I'm not afraid of birds. 
Okay. I just, I'm not afraid of birds at all. I like birds. I, I have no problem with birds. No, I'm just saying the watching the birds attack and tear into the people's flesh and go after children. And oh, okay. So you, for you, it was terrifying. For me, it was just, I don't get it. They're birds. I was the age. <laughs> well, I think I was the age of the school kids in that when I saw it. I was about ten. It was on television. So it scared me. I was now, a, I was a very innocent kid, so what can I tell you? <laughs> now, now some birds can be a little scary, but you know the actual scary birds can be scary. Like here, where my my wife and I live on top of a hill in Pennsylvania, and one of the things we have are, are red-tailed hawks, which are relatively big birds, mm-hmm. and they they swoop down and they kill things and eat them alive. <laughs> they're, they're a little scary. <laughs> uh, we also we we live in a in a somewhat like slightly wooded area so we will actually have like turkeys you know walk through our yard and and for people who've never met an actual wild turkey they're pretty big and they're not <laughs> nice <laughs> and and uh just a uh like last year during summer uh, the way my office in, at the house is set up i have a door right near my desk that just walks right out into the yard and I just, just wanted a breath of fresh air. I open the door, I walk out, and there's a turkey like two feet away from me, a big, big, you know, it was either a female or male or whatever, but but it, it was almost as tall as I was, and I'm looking at him thinking, huh. <laughs> uh, hi there. Hi there, and, big bird. Hi there, big bird. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and if turkeys want to get upset at you and, and stuff, they have the claws and muscle and stuff to, you know, do stuff. So... So, you know, you just have to kind of be careful with, like, you know, you just, just sort of want to, I wanted to say, like, move along, move along, nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> this is not your place. Go back to you where you're from. <laughs> Go home. Yeah, I know. I understand. I mean, it's like, I never saw Psycho until I was at a science fiction convention. But by the time I had seen it, I knew everything about it. I knew that, um... I knew how the knife scene happened. I knew about her screaming because he was changing the water pressure. I knew that it was Hershey's chocolate down the drain. So what that did was it made it less scary. And I watched it and I was fine. I was watching it for the drama more than the scare um, because I already had seen so many scenes from it. and And I knew so much because I saw Hitchcock being interviewed and gently being interviewed and the the uh, uh, the technical wizard who did it talking about it and all. So by the time I actually saw it, I was in my twenties. It was like, oh, okay. So I'll just enjoy the acting. <laughs> no, the psycho I appreciated more. And rearview mirror, not rearview mirror. Is it rear? No. There's rear. There, what's the one where they're looking across the street? Rear, rear window. Rear window. Rear window, not rear view mirror. Rear window, that's it. Okay, old old brain having trouble pulling things up. Rear but, window uh, but, yeah, is one of my favorite you... Hitchcock movies. That's a top favorite Hitchcock movie for me. <laughs> it's just, it's such a brilliant movie. And To Catch a Thief is another one. I love that movie. But uh, but I I grew up watching those but I, I was very eclectic in everything I read and everything I watched so so I really liked you know um, there, Godzilla like movies um, there were a whole bunch of 
sort of dinosaur movies like um, uh, Reptilicus and um, Creature from 10,000 Leagues or something and uh, Into Terror from Beyond Space there's all kinds of uh, Valley of the Guanji I remember um, had dinosaurs and cowboys that was cool so I, I would watch almost you know anything and and to this day, that sort of eclectic feel still stays with me. So I can go from reading something that's relatively, in my background is an English major, so I can read Moby Dick or Don Quixote and enjoy those tremendously and read Shakespeare and, and, and you know, enjoy it on both intellectual and that sort of level. But, you know, if you give me a stupid Saturday black and white movie where there's a monster with tentacles, I'll enjoy that too. So um, I, I think with... that makes life I just think that makes life fun. It's like I don't understand kind of, you know, snobbishness. It's like yeah. I'm a serious person and I don't, you know, watch or read these other things. It's like why not? They're fun. I I, I yeah, and that I I don't understand it either. Um, I love classics, but I love mysteries, and I love murder myths. I mean, I love science fiction. I love fantasy. I love watching all kinds of movies. But I, I haven't. I, I'm not. I'm not really into the same genre you are. But there was one I saw. It had Raymond Burr in it, and I think it was Godzilla. Again, Godzilla is the original Godzilla is with Raymond Burr. Yeah. Not I, a not a brilliant movie. Just have fun. No, but it, uh, that's the only one I ever saw is the one with Raymond oh, Burr. Okay. And no, I, well, let's put it this way: that's probably that's probably the most reason, that's probably the most reasonable classic monster movie version of Godzilla. From there, it, from, do you know if you ever watched Lost in Space, the original Lost in Space, and how it went from in the very first episodes it was almost a serious space show, and then by the time they were done, like within three years, they were talking to giant carrots. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay, Godzilla's a little like that. So. <laughs> Uh, there was the original, an original movie which was almost a little serious about this giant monster, and you know, within a little while, they're talking to little ladies who sing songs to giant moths, and uh, <laughs> and and you know, fighting a mechanized Godzilla or a mechanized version of King Kong or whatever. So, so it 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 followed that kind of really strange evolution into insanity, but. But like I said, still still fun, you know. I'm not gonna try it, but I can sing the Mothra song. <laughs> I um, I actually well, my favorite alien was Uncle Martin, and my favorite Martian. <laughs> yes, I I remember that show, and I remember I remember liking that show as well. I love him. Um, I, I love both my, of them. My my introduction to science fiction from an early age. Um, the, I think the first thing I ever saw on television that was science fiction oriented was called um, Space Angel, Scott McCloud's Space Angel, which was a very interesting animated series in that it was really pan, it was really different panels where they animated very small parts of the panel, often just the lips on the character. So you would have a frame of uh, frame of the the um, actor, well not actor, but the, a frame of the protagonist or, you know, whatever and they would just animate the lips um, and while they talked and that would be the most animation there was in the scene and then they would just, you know, go to another frame and, and do something else. But but at that point, it, that just captured my imagination in such a dramatic way that, you know, oh my God, it's 
you know, a rocket and people are flying it and they're going into outer space and exploring the stuff. And, and um, then uh, I got enamored with Jerry Anderson's uh, works uh, like Fireball XL5, um, which was, um, again, a sort of a space agency with, you know, people who were um, <clears throat> part of uh, a uniformed force that, you know, patrolled the galaxy and, you know, saved, saved everybody. So I liked that and Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds was another one of his. Um, and, you know, by the time I, by the time I saw those, I was just, just, uh, totally a science fiction geek. So, well, which I, I was five, but I was a science fiction geek. My dad really wanted me to like science fiction because he loves science fiction. So I think the first science fiction movie I saw which was a classic and was beautiful and still my favorite was um, actually The Day the Earth Stood Still. He won because he knew that I was scared of bug-eyed monsters and stuff like that. I, I would leave the room. Okay, are you, are you going to believe I just watched that version of The Day the Earth Stood Still like two days ago? <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, I love. I have it on DVD. I watch it whenever I feel like it. But I, I love that movie. I did, uh, first of all, can you have a better alien than Michael Rennie? Michael Rennie, um, and, um, and who was the, the woman? Patricia uh, Neal. Patricia Neal, yeah, she was she was a big big actress or became a big actress after that. That was really really something. But but yeah, that's that's a very intelligent, very well done. Like even today, it stands uh, head and shoulders as as one of the more intelligent and and well written. And do you um, remember? Well, you just fiction. you just saw it. Sam Jaffe as a scientist. Yeah. I mean, God. Yeah, he, does, <laughs> he, does, he does an exceptional exceptional job as as the scientist and and. Um, you know, with with minimal special effects, but with dialogue and that sort of thing, they bring you to the understanding that you know Michael Rennie represents a a um, uh, essentially a, a, a race or a civilization that is almost infinitely more powerful than humans, and and um, that uh, you know they're they're just here to make sure that humans don't spread out you know past Earth and bring their their warlike obstreperous nature. You know, into into the galaxy kind of thing. It's like you got one chance. You got one chance to straighten up. It's right now. <laughs> Figure it out. I actually met Billy Gray. He was at a um, a collectible show, and he, he had pictures. And I picked the day that Earth stood still, where it was him and Michael Rennie. And I asked him. I said, "What was it like with all those adults like Michael Rennie and Patricia Neal? Did you did were, did you talk to them or did?" He goes, oh yeah, Michael Rennie was fun. He told us, sto- told me stories, and he was musically would sing, play the piano and sing because there was a piano on the and the set. And wow. he he she, he goes, he was a lot of fun. Patricia Neal was very nice, but I didn't talk too much to her. But Michael was nice. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, I, he, I and my, and Billy said he he thinks he was the same age as his own son, who was back in England. Oh, okay. So he, um, that's probably why he could relate so well to Billy. Interesting. Yeah. But yes, I I, I love that movie. Um, uh, lots of these, like the the more children ones, like Space Angel and Fireball XL Five and Thunderbirds, that that were things that really got me into it. But as as I grew up, then I uh, came across um, Today the Earth Stood Still, uh, Forbidden Planet, 
Um, I love Forbidden Planet. Favorites. Oh, and, uh, I love that's that really movie. A precursor. That's really a precursor to Star Trek. They were basically try doing a trial on this is how Star Trek will work. You know, that's, that wasn't their intention, but that's really what they ended up doing. Um, and I'm sure that that was an influence on on Gene Roddenberry as far as as how you would portray a sort of a paramilitary, you know, sort of um, thing in space with a spaceship and exploration and and dealing with dangerous, you know, alien environments and, and puzzles that you have to figure out to, you know, survive and sort of thing. So, so it's 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 very sort of pre-Star Trek. You can see all the influences in it. And also the the well, I guess it's not really a bad guy, but the the monster. I don't want to give it away for anybody who's never seen the movie, but the monster, the the reason for it and everything is quite intellectual. Yes, yeah, it's 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 very much not. Oh, here's here's the monster that's just going to eat everybody and that sort of thing. It's it's developing a puzzle and understanding the clues and and understanding where this this um, malevolent force is coming from and and understanding, you know, that it's it's really something that that you're causing kind of idea and again not to give too much away but uh and that way they the way they build the um the because they're they land on a planet where there are human survivors who are exploring an ancient civilization called the Krell civilization that um they're they're mech they're all gone but their mechanisms are still there and still active so there are these these you know vast cities which are very well portrayed using the the tools they had at the time, they didn't really have CGI in the way we think of CGI it's now. It's beautifully done. They had, they had matte paintings done. and stuff and, that they used, and it was all, all beautifully done and very evocative, and you really got the sense of, of such a vast civilization and the exploration of these these places. And, and um, yeah, and, the, and, and you got the sense of just a crew that works well together and, and the different personalities on the crew and and, and things like that. And it, it's also the movie that introduced Robbie the Robot. Yes. So. And also, um, I think that was the first really big hit Leslie Nielsen was ever in. Oh, I, could, I didn't know that. I could see it. I also had seen Leslie Nielsen in um, just standard adventure things. Like, I remember him being in one Foreign Legion movie where he was one of the commanders or something in the Foreign Legion. Um, so, yeah, he spent spent like a lifetime doing like serious dramatic roles and um then in his later years became such a, a comedic genius thank god for airplane right <laughs> <laughs> i mean even when he was in a comedy like mash he was a straight man you know he wasn't yeah. he wasn't funny i mean he was funny, funny but yeah, he yeah, wasn't yeah. He, he wasn't he, he, was, he was the butt of the joke he wasn't he the, was the butt of the joke yes, yeah yes yes i remember him in mash i remember that episode yes so it was it was uh, airplane was a chance for him to be the one doing the joke. You know, he, he, it was it changed his life. He he was so happy about that. You know, well everybody in that movie had a good time. That tells yes. you something. No, I I enjoyed that movie a lot. Yeah, I love both. Um, of, I love both of them. And by the time I was. It was probably when I was around nine, I think, maybe, I'm not sure, but um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then that solidified for me, like, serious science fiction. It's like, to, to this day, that's one of my absolute favorites, and and I, I find it curious that I run into, you know, so many people, like, like you know, my wife being one of them, my, 
you know, nephew being another, basically telling me how, you know, boring this movie is and, and how there's so little going on with it. And I'm trying to explain, we, well, you know, really the dialogue is kind of meaningless. It's like the whole movie is, is, is supposed to have meaning well beyond the dialogue. So the, the, it's not like other movies where, where what people are saying really affects the plot or the characters that much. It's, it's all the concepts. It's like, let's talk about these, these amazing concepts that are being brought forth and, 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 you know, as well as the, just the special effects to show what this would really be like. And, and so I, I absolutely adore 2001 and, you know, think about it often, um, you know. So. Well, it'd be considered today pretty much an art movie because yeah, that's what it that. is. It's not, it's not, a, it's, it's a really high concept science fiction movie. It's not the normal yeah. of the genre. So when I when I came home, I remember coming home from 2001 when I you know begged my sister to take me to see it. Um, I remember coming home and and you know how in uh, Close Encounters Richard Dreyfus starts building mountains out of everything, including mm-hmm. mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. 2000, two, when I came home from 2001, it affected me so dramatically psychologically and, and that sort of thing that that I uh, just got out art paper and and stuff. It you know I probably had never drawn with that my mom got me to draw stuff and I started using markers and I started drawing space scenes and I started trying to build little models of of spaceships not out of model kits like you go buy model kits today you didn't really often have that ability then but just you know give me a piece of plastic like the top off the um, uh, laundry detergent and then this other piece of plastic which whatever and I would get some glue and I would make my spaceships and, and that sort of thing. So, so it really started this this um, uh, kind of creative impetus. It's like to to think in that world and, and be part of that world and, and you know fall in love with technology. So it's interesting because if you think about it, years later, um, St- Steven Spielberg's science fiction movies was sort of like what Harry Potter was to fantasy movies. It ignited imaginations. People became really into science fiction because of Close Encounters and um, uh, E.T. and um, uh, all those other ones. I can't think of them right now. Um, Sorry, age. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But even though I love Spielberg and I love his movies, it's just not coming to me. Uh, Those are the only two that popped in my head. Um, but what I'm just saying is, the, it, it's a generational thing, I think, um, that movies will affect people, make people into, well, make them, it sounds like it's a force, but um, entice people into loving a certain type of thing, like science fiction or fantasy. It's, it's the idea of we, we become what we imagine. Right. Um, it, it, you have to be careful about that because one of the things like, you know, with the magazine that we do with Dreamforge, it's actually a, a reaction just like H.G. Wells was a reaction against Metropolis. You know, we're kind of a reaction against how gloom and doom things yeah. had got for yeah. a while and grimdark and, and the, you know, the apocalypse and the world's going to end and, you know, the zombies are all going to get us, which which is all fine. Like, I grew up liking horror movies and I grew up liking that stuff, but I just, in say the last hmm, 20 years maybe got the feeling that, that the whole trend had moved toward well the earth is doomed we're all doomed 
it's all going to end horribly, um, and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's not the world that I grew up in as far as just mentally thinking about things. It's like, no, there's going to be a grand age of exploration, and, and you know, we're going to go out, and we're going to find all this other life, and we're going to find other civilizations, and, um, you know, we're humanity is going to expand out into the universe and, and basically find its destiny beyond beyond Earth. And, um, you know, so so I think that, that really it's like, well, what do you imagine? It's like it, there's difference between being entertained by, you know, uh, The Walking Dead, which, you know, I, I certainly was. It was one of my favorite shows for a long time. And, and believing, the, putting a, in your soul in the zeitgeist like well civilization is going to collapse and we're all doomed and it's going to be savage and I really believe that and that's how I'm going to live my life you know there's there's two there's a difference there uh, bet- between you know sort of the fun part of it and, and sort of believing it in your bones that that's the way things are going to be yeah so, I, I I agree um, it's funny because um, you were talking about the childhood things that introduced you to science fiction what introduced me to science fiction uh, I did see Lost in Space. It wasn't my favorite, but I watched it because it was on Saturday morning. But I, my, the thing that really introduced me to science fiction was the original Star Trek. And um, also, um, I can't remember the name of the show. Gil Gerard, Aaron Gray. Oh, um, Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers in the 25th century. That was the okay. other show. Those were the two shows that introduced me to science fiction when I was a kid. Um, well, I, I I was negligent then because at at nine years old I w- I actually watched the first Star Trek episode um, uh, that was that was ever broadcast. I I got so excited I, I I was just there by myself in the living room. Nobody was watching TV, and I found it and I ran out to the kitchen where my mom was doing something or whatever, and I just had to start explaining. This was bef- this was like when the first commercial came on, and I had to run out and explain how wonderful this was what I just found and it's like you know they, they're on this alien planet and they have they have these phasers and and you know this uh, so I was I was really uh, really excited by that but yeah the the whole idea of uh, you know I, I understand the whole idea of Star Trek just with the the idea again of a community of people who are you know international in scope all with differences all who um you know, uh, work together, care about one another, and and are you know devoted to a mission beyond uh, the selfishness and and ag- aggrandization and greed of of something. You know that that all uh, was very very appealing. Yeah, and that's actually the uh, those two shows are, were a big influence for my um, love of science. Well. And my dad introduced me to Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov and Heinlein, and um, <laughs> that had an influence too. Because <laughs> I was more of Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and Ellery Queen. <laughs> and he goes, I, and my brother was into science fiction. He goes, I just want people to talk to you about it, you know? Here. <laughs> so the first book he gave me was Slam from A.E. Venvo because he knew it was a very gentle story. And I'm he, not familiar with that one. Oh, it's really good. It's about um, how uh, people were um, evolving into the next species and they were being hunted by the people who weren't evolving. 
but it, was, it, it, it sounds like it is in general, but it's, it's about this girl who, um, they, they grew antenna, and, and in her, she has, like, um, white hair, and because her hair is so bright, it hides the antenna in her hair. It's a really beautiful story, and that's the first one I ever read. And then the second one is Ray Bradbury's Dandelion book. Um, that was the other book that Dad gave me. Those were the two books that introduced me to science fiction. He's trying to weed. It's so funny. He's he tried me weed me out of mystery, and at a time when he was older in his fifties, he got bored because he kept reading the same Golden Age science fiction books over and over and over and over and over. Because he didn't like dystopian at all, and and I sort of introduced him to mysteries. Okay, well, that's cool. So that's it was like really this nice. circle, <laughs> and he became a huge Perot and Miss Marple, and I I don't think he ever read any of the Dorothy Sayers, uh, but he did read he he loved the Perot books. He really he loved Agatha Christie. That's such a nice story. Yeah. So um, it's sort before, of funny. before science fiction, you were mysteries and that sort of thing. Before science fiction, the only thing I can remember are comic books. So before so before I read any science fiction, I was reading Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, The Silver Surfer. Um, you know, there, there actually was a comic book called Lost in Space that had nothing to do with the TV series. Completely different characters, completely different spaceship and, and all that sort of thing. I was the Robinson family, though, but it was a different family. And, um, you yeah, know, that was one of my favorites. Um... Uh, Magnus Robot Fighter was a guy who basically was saving the world from evil robots in a highly future mechanized uh, uh, civilization, and he he had learned martial arts and he could deal with robots with martial arts. He was the only human who could fight back against them, and um, so I loved that sort of stuff. And I remember being in a store, I have lots of memories from being very small, but I remember being in a store where I was getting my comic books with my mom, and they also had a, a little book rack with paperback novels. And one attracted me in particular, and that was Robert Heinlein's um, Rocket Ship Galileo, and because it had a spaceship on the cover, and they were taking off, and that's when I was you know, starting to see like Space Angel and those other things on TV. And, and I thought, well, I'm going to buy that. Uh, because I'd never read a book before, and when I got it home, I was looking at it, and it's like my, I remember feeling, boy, there's a lot of words here. This is going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, especially but with I, Heinlein. <laughs> yeah, cause I, I, but I read through, it was one of his young adult ones, but, but I, read, I read through that, and, and then, I was, then I was hooked on science fiction books you know, after that. And actually, one of the things that surprises me to this day old as I am, I still have that original book that I bought. It's still on our shelves. And when um, uh, Jane and I got married, uh, and we were, you know, joining our book collections together, we both had the same copy. Um, hers, hers was maybe a reprint from about a year or two later, but it was the same copy. Hers, her difference was it costs like 75% more or something like that. Um, but but we both had the same copy of Rocket Ship Galileo, so that was well, I didn't read uh, Robert Heinlein until I was oh, about 17, 18, so I was almost an adult. And so the first book Dad gave me was Stranger in a Strange Land, because he <laughs> I thought I that. would enjoy it. And I did. I grokked it. Uh, well, I think Robert Heinlein, he sometimes gets a bad 
rap, I think, as well. You know, you wrote um, Starship Troopers, so he's kind of a fascist kind of thing. And, and I don't think that's necessarily what was going on at all. I think if you look across his, his entire arc of work, what he loved to do was play with ideas mm-hmm. and he loved to explore different realities. And it wasn't just, well, the different reality of this one as a spaceship or, you know, whatever it was psychological realities of, you know, uh, the con you know, stranger in a strange, um, land is, is almost like a Christ-like story, you know, um, basically hippies, hippie, hippie, <laughs> hippie Christ-like story. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and um, they're, they're just, you know, and in his older, some of his last novels are very kind of metaphysical. And, um, you know, he, he loved, I think, exploring those different realities uh, that humans can get themselves into. The funniest uh, and, one. And I think he did a really good job of it. The funniest one I ever read was Job. I don't think I've read that one. I don't, I don't think that's that's one of the ones that I've I've experienced yet. It is, it's. It is a. It is about the concept that humans have these weird ideas about heaven and hell, and, and that sounds yeah, that sounds like Robert Heinlein. <laughs> and that um, and that uh, Satan was only fallen for a little while. It was like for for us, it's been a long time, but for him, it was a few days. He was dad threw me out for about a week, basically. Yeah. He was he was in exile. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 hearkening back to our conversation pre-show. <laughs> yeah, exile. He was in exile. He was exiled by his dad, God, and oh. and um, and he said, "I was, all, you know, it, 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 it's sort of like the same concept that Mark Twain wrote a book about. It's called Letters from Earth, and it's also about Satan, and also about our weird ideas of uh, metaphysical." Because it's almost the same idea is that, again, he's, he goes, I'm only here for a few months, and I'm just getting to know what humans are like. And he goes, they're really weird, and let me tell you why they're weird. He's writing to his brother, Michael. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be able to learn a darn thing from these people, but I am trying to learn. And <laughs> It's very funny. Um, they're both comedies. Right. Must tell you something. <laughs> you, you've, you've convinced me. I'm, I'll add that to my list of things I have to read now. It's a real. It's a, it's it's very Mark Twain. I got it. It's very. It's it's full of his humor. Um, and it's uh, actually uh, because um, his daughter was worried. She she uh, suppressed it for a long time. Um, because she she said my father is Christian and you know this is just this is just a different thing he was experimenting with and so she, she, when she finally said okay you can publish it because he did it toward the end of his life um, but I I want to write the Ford and the Ford was explaining how he was just experimenting but his, her father was very Christian he had it was really full of faith and all this, it was like almost too much because I read it um, it was almost too much it was uh, your father had a great sense of humor and that's what the book's about it was just I, and I understand I understand the fear because we still have that kind of thing today 
but it's such a good book. It's one of my favorite books. And like I said, it's a it's a comedy. It's a humorous book. It's it's fun. And just like um, Job, uh, uh, when you read the description of hell and you read this description of heaven, you kind of want to stay in hell because they have a lot more fun than they do in heaven. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's it's it's a comedy. Uh, <laughs> oh, I I understand that. There are so many people who who um, uh, are so much about heaven that I look at them and say, if you're there. I'm finding some place else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There gotta be another place. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I love books like that. I love books that take ideas. And we do have strange concepts. People people decide that this is absolutely the way it is. How do they know? They don't know what. Nobody knows what happens when you die. So you really don't know what it is. It's all. It's all stories. That's what it, it's, you know, humans are stories. And, and nobody really knows because they don't come back and tell us. Well, the, the thing, the way that I look at it is basically humans, humans are not rational creatures. We're, we're very emotional and experiential animals. And, um, you know, it, the fact that we can communicate and tell stories and all that kind of stuff is, is absolutely amazing. But at the heart of us, at the core of us, we're not rational. That's kind of a little bit of an overlay it's one of the last things that developed for us the ability to to do things like critical thinking and science um and that's that is still a rare thing that's not a species-wide from birth everybody is just naturally uh empirical or critical from from birth everybody is naturally um emotional and in that naturally what do i experience and how do i feel about things and and what what do what does my tribe tell me that I'm supposed to believe in? That's the natural state of, of who we are, and the ability to to basically think critically um, and say, well, this is really the truth here because I have facts and I can back it up. That that whole thing from you know proving things in law to proving things in science that's that's all relatively new for us. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is I think. I think people have lost their sense of humor. It's it's just these uh, these like I said these books were comedy books. These were mm-hmm. funny books, and people it's it, it, it's you know it's unusual for Heinlein to write a comedy, but it wasn't unusual for Twain to write a comedy. I I think I would be more concerned if I was. I mean I understand she's trying to protect her dad, and I agree that I. I, as a daughter, I would do the same. But the thing is, I'd be more concerned about Huckleberry, uh, Huckleberry Finn and the racism in there, than uh, and, and, and worried about that, than worried about a silly book about you know reverse heaven and hell and make it silly and and make Michael and and Peter and Satan all friends and um, they exchange stuff and it's a comedy. <laughs> You know, I just, yeah. I, 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 it really bothers me. The sense of humor part of it is, where is it, where's it gone? <laughs> well, people, people often lose their sense of humor when they feel um, threatened by something. 
that something's going to destroy. Because again, going back to that idea of we live in stories and we live in emotions and experience and stuff, it's like you've, you've got a built up sense of what normalcy is and what the world is and what is comforting. And as, that, as, the, as anybody challenges that, it makes you feel uncomfortable and, and you react against it. Um, and I think that's a lot of the problems that societies have. And it's something we've dealt with forever, but today's society, I think, is, is struggling because things are changing so fast. Technology, the wonderful things that our critical reason has been able to bring into the world, um, is changing things so quickly that everybody feels threatened. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's trying to, and when you look around the world and you say, oh, well, things are just becoming awful because there's so many authoritarian regimes and, and you know, even in the United States, like, you know, the far right is questioning whether there should be democracy or, you know, and, and I understand that is all a threat and it is all bad stuff, but uh, I kind of get a sense of where that's coming from. It's coming from the need for people as a, as a mass you know, sort of a mass psychosis idea. We need to go back to something comfortable that we understand. Stop, stop making things new. <laughs> you know, not not just technology, but just stop trying to change things. And every, everybody who was oppressed before, just like shut up and go back to being oppressed. <laughs> we don't want to hear from anybody. We want to live in our comfortable little thing where, you know, uh, you know, especially if you if you were white and male, it's like you know you're fine and you're dominant and all that kind of stuff. And that's just not what's going to be. You no. know, it's it's just like uh, no. <laughs> demographics are changing, population is changing, technology is changing, um, people's people's willingness to step out and say, "Hey, I'm a part of the LGBT community," or, or you know, I have gen, you know, I uh, want to change genders or, or whatever it is. It's like you know, people are are sensing an environment where they say, "Well, I'm I'm done with the not saying who I am, and I want to live my life and." You know that sort of thing, and and technology is changing to the point where nobody knows whether their job's going to be there two days later, and so all of that massive change for very many people is is terribly frightening. I'm one of those people who grew up through science fiction, and so I look at stuff and say, "Wow, this is really cool." <laughs> it's like what an age we live in, you know, with all this all this change and that sort. Of, but for lots of people, that's a uh, whether they admit it or not, whether they understand it rationally or not, emotionally it's a terrifying prospect. And it feels like the world is falling apart. And one of the ways you correct that is by basically supporting populist authoritarian things. It's like let's let's just get a big, you know, hammer and pound everybody back to where they belong and I understand what the world is like. Um, but, you know, that's gonna be for a while. Uh, and you know, I don't know exactly what's what's going to come after that, but I think the the forces that have been unleashed in all of these things, from technology to social and all that, I don't think they are stoppable. That you can't put them back in the bottle, no matter how hard people try or how much force they're going to apply to do that. They can make it they can make it easy, they can make it hard, um, but they can't stop it. I don't I don't think there is a going back. That's not going to happen. No, no. I just, I think people are, see, I understand the fear, but I don't understand the bigotry. Um, I guess it's just me. Um, Well, it's, yeah, again, go, like, again, I I often sound like I'm making excuses, and I don't mean to sound like I'm making excuses. I'm, I'm really trying to kind of understand and just pin some level of understanding on things, and 
when you talk about like like well, I don't understand the bigotry, well bigotry and lots of that other stuff can make people feel comfortable because you've been told where the problem it's like witches, you know, it's like you don't even have to talk about anything else. It's like it's like those people over there they're in league with the devil, and they're the reason your crops fail. They're the reason yeah. you have disease in your village. They're the reason why things don't seem to be working for you. They're the reason why I have to tax you more. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. It's like, you know, it, um, it, it's like people who are in charge of things, who can't control things, like the government and that sort of thing, and, and you know, can't really make everything better for you. At least they can other people and make you pay attention to those people over there who you have to go test for witches or burn at the stake or whatever and now having identified a problem um you can basically put your energy and your hatred toward it in you know instead of really actually questioning anything or dealing with anything on a real level and now you feel better about yourself because especially if you can say those people are bad and i have been a good person by you know thinking bad of them and and you know doing bad to them um now I now I'm in a position where I feel like I have some control and power, and um, so you know I think there are just real social dynamic things that, as a species, is a way that we've dealt with things probably for millions of years, um, but aren't useful or excusable now. Um, they but we have to be aware that they're there. It's like uh, you know I, I don't think that at the basis almost anybody is is evil oftentimes i think they're just driven by natural ways that our species is geared to work for things and they are they are unaware when one way of saying it would be they are unwoke (laughs) to to how they are behaving or how they are being driven by by natural forces to uh to to do things um that that are not useful in a in today's real society Today's real world, and um, you know, uh, and ultimately they're going to have to come to terms with stuff because they just aren't going to win. <laughs> it's no, just not gonna happen. it's not going to happen. Um, I'm going to change the transfer. Um, so I want to know what's happening with Dreamforge and all kinds of stuff. What's what's happening with your 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 magazine and all that oh, good well. stuff. Um, well, Dreamforge is in its fifth year now, so we've managed to survive for like fifth years. We're kind of, kind of like in the middle of it. We're doing our fifth Kickstarter right now um, here in in June, um, and so if this is aired during the Kickstarter, everybody go to Kickstarter, find Dreamforge, and, and you know subscribe or whatever. Otherwise, just go to our website, DreamforgeMagazine.com, and, and subscribe. But as as we talked a little bit earlier, we're um, a magazine that's geared on hope and progress where the human adventure is just beginning and um where we do have a print version we're dreamforge is a full color illustrated print magazine with our quarterly digital online edition that we call dreamforge anvil and we kind of look for those stories that show how humans come together and communities come together to overcome problems so you're not going to find horror or dystopian stuff um in dreamforge you you will find people who deal with significant problems and and challenges and you know overcome those and and um you know so we really like that kind of positive story and in our fifth year some of our goals are one to publish more fiction so we're actually going to try to do uh, an anthology size a larger issue next year um, with the theme the grand uplift and um 
kind of get it from the words that Grand Uplift were looking for stories that really show uh, generational change in thinking about how humanity's going to move forward there. But we also want to do some practical things like set up a $500 bonus for best story of the year, voted by our readers. We want to see if we can raise our pay rate now at seven cents a word to eight cents a word for stories. And um, so it's, it's just a kind of an exciting dynamic time to try to, um, you know, continue going with Dreamforge. And um, it's not only print, but every story is illustrated. It has an illustration and it's, you know, full color. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. Um, uh, uh, one of the cool things that happened to uh, my wife and I this year was I'm, I am a Writers of the Future uh, winner from back in 1990, um, back when it was volume six. And as um, John Goodwin, who's the um, president of the Galaxy Press, says back in the pre-Cambrian age. Um, so they, <laughs> they as, as they're getting up this year to their 39th, they, one of the things they will do is they'll invite back you know, previous winners to come see the contest and, and give little presentations to the, the winners this year. And this year we got invited back. I got invited back, and then I said, well, you know, my wife's coming, too. So so they actually made something for her to do, since she's the uh, graphics designer and, and does a lot of the illustrations for Dreamforge. They had her talk to the winning illustrators, and I gave a little presentation to the winning writers on how do you submit to a magazine and do that successfully, and how do you understand what's happening to your story, you know, in once the it gets to the first-line readers, and it gets to the editor, and, and how does that go through, and, and that's the biggest compliment that I got out of the whole thing was um, Tim Powers was uh, in in the uh, in the audience because he was teaching a lot and um, uh, a- afterward I was I was packing up and, and that sort of thing and he walked by and he said that was really good I hope they were taking notes so that that was my my biggest you know compliment That's compliment lovely. there. That's so really nice. um, yeah, I was on cloud nine after that, um, <laughs> and uh, so that was a wonderful, wonderful adventure. We, it was held in Hollywood this year. We got to go out to Hollywood, and in bet- in between doing things at the at the Writers of the Future um, event and, and gala, we we got to go out and see like the you know Hollywood Boulevard and the stars and and the Chinese theater and and. Um, you know, just just take in the aura and go to the Hollywood Museum, and we didn't have a lot of time, but we had an enormous amount of fun. One of the reasons why why we decided to do that was not just because we were invited, but it was actually my wife and I our 25th anniversary, Aww. and and we'd been we'd been planning to go to Niagara Falls, and uh, so we we basically were all set, and you know had money for a vacation, and and we're all ready to 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 go somewhere, and um, you know, and they said we'd really like you to come out here. It's like, well. That sounds like a pretty good 25th anniversary. <laughs> so, did you guys so said, did you guys take a tour of Max Factor? No, we did not. Uh, uh, no. Because oh, I thought because your wife's into design. There was a Hollywood. There was a Hollywood. Well, there was a Hollywood museum, and they had like a room on Max Factor stuff. No, so, there's actually a Max Factor tour of the museum. It's actually. Uh, oh. Okay. Yeah, it's a separate I, thing. It's in the museum itself. Okay, I don't think I don't think we got the tour on that. I'm not sure, but we did we did walk through. I do remember walking through that room. I'm I'm the guy, so that wasn't my my biggest thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just was curious. It's like okay, there was makeup. <laughs> and they do have a really cool. Well, makeup. Think about the makeup Max Factor did. He did the Universal Monsters. Yes. You know, 
Max Factor was the makeup guy for uh, the the studios. He, he came up with all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so it's not just women's makeup. It's me. I, I was I was most excited when I found the original Batman and Robin costume. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the Wax Museum. No, that was that was in the Hollywood Museum. That oh. was in the Hollywood Museum. Okay. I, I haven't been there. I mean, I I I moved from LA uh, several years ago, so they probably changed the stuff since I last been there. But yeah, I'm pretty aware of what was on Hollywood Boulevard. LA is my yeah. actual home. That's where I was raised. Oh. <laughs> well, one of the one of the uh, cool things I I figured out to defend myself was, uh, and by defend myself I mean when we were on Hollywood Boulevard, we we're kind of you know old people and we obviously looked like tourists. So the, the, you know, the street hucksters were basically, you know, either trying to give us music CDs or take photos with Spider-Man or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, they, they want, you know, to give you, they want you to give them a donation for that. And, uh, the first time we were there, I was pretty, um, uh, kind of caught by that. And it's like, oh yeah, what, whatever, here's money, go, you know, go away. Um, but, uh, then I realized that like my wife and I actually, our business that we work for day job is called Chroma Studios. And I took a jacket with me, one of my Chroma Studios jackets that has our logo emblazoned on it. And I, I realized, you know, if I wear this, they're going to think I'm actually here with, with like a, a Hollywood agency or something. And they're going to leave me alone because I'm on business. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> so the next time my wife and I went out onto the street and onto Hollywood Boulevard, I, I wore my Chroma Studios jacket. And, and the, the only... The only the only people who approached me basically said, uh, "Chroma Studios, which one is that?" And it's <laughs> like, you know, busy. We're we gotta go. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just like I'm not gonna bother the real Hollywood person. Is kind of what what uh, what I think was the impression that I gave, and that was exactly what I was going for. Oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah, I, I can understand. But as long as you guys had fun, I mean, that's the point oh, it of was, a it vacation. Was a, it, was a, it was a lifetime experience, so it, it was absolutely, it was absolutely tremendous. Were you guys staying at the Roosevelt Hotel? Oh, which hotel did we stay at? Um, it's awful because it was only last month, and I can't remember the name of it. Um, that's the damn. I can, I can picture it in my head. <laughs> But I can't remember the name of the hotel. Was it on Hollywood Boulevard? It was not on directly on Hollywood Boulevard. It was a couple of blocks away, but we could we could basically walk from the hotel down to Hollywood Boulevard without any trouble or or you know any um, effort. I mean, I mean, it was right right there. It was like right beside the Grumman's, what used to be Grumman's Chinese Theater, um, and the place where they do the um, the the Oscars, that sort of thing. So it, it's it's a hotel that's right there. Uh, and my brain is just total blank right now. But the other thing that amazed me about Hollywood Boulevard and that thing is that Hollywood Boulevard is like everything Hollywood is like on Hollywood Boulevard pretty mm -hmm. much as far as it was the impression that I got. And if you turn off Hollywood Boulevard and you just walk up a street, you're basically in, in kind of an almost normal residential area. It's, oh, not yeah. even like a high, it's not even like a high-end super Hollywood expensive gated community or anything. It's just like a normal community that would be around Yeah, here Hollywood is not a wealthy area. Um, yeah. it, it, I used to work there. But if you go to Sunset and you walk a couple of blocks up from Sunset Boulevard, 
then you're in the high end area. Gotcha, gotcha. Because that's that's where the mansions start. Also, if you're near um, Griffith Park and you go into the area next to that, Las Feliz, that's also a high end area. Gotcha. <laughs> But yeah, the Hollywood, the neighborhoods around Hollywood, they're just normal neighborhoods. They're just pe where people live. <laughs> You're not going to see movie stars there. <laughs> so, but yes, it was it was a really really nice experience. That's so, cool. Something we will you know treasure, always treasure. That's beautiful. Um, and anything else happening? Um, just being really busy. One of the things um I was I was talking to you about before we started the show was at, at work um, we're we're learning about all this new generative AI talking about you know moving into the future sort of thing and um, I've been learning how to use uh, chat GPT in my work and I know there's a lot of controversy about that there's a lot of controversy with like the writer strike and how writers will work with chat GPT but I'm again one of those futurist type people I'm always excited about what the latest technology is so I've been trying to see how we can use it in developing the web projects and, and stuff that, that we do and and then I have that other side where as a science fiction writer and publishing the magazine I know what some of the tensions are so I, I get to balance kind of these things in my head and, and try to understand the reactions that some people are having and then how other people can use it so so one of the funnest things just, just to talk about fun is I love how, how the AI can just hallucinate which, which is one of the first things that I learned about it. And what do I mean by hallucinate? Well, um, one of the tests that I gave it when I was, because I have a, a thing I've developed, because there, there are these AI chat things that have come out for a few years, and none of them have been as good up until ChatGPT, but I have these little tests that I give things. And one of them is I wanted to generate a bio of, of me. So there, there's a you know, fair amount of actual information people could find online to learn about my life and the computer games that I worked in and, and you know, like just where I went to school and all this. So there's stuff online, right? Um, but I asked it to generate a bio for me, and it hallucinated the entire thing. It sounded <laughs> wonderful. Uh, according, to, according to Chad GPT, I made these these – I wrote novels that I, I never wrote. Uh, I, I won the uh, – Award for science fiction for something I never wrote. Um, I worked on it. It, it, it figured out that I worked on computer games, but none of the games that it mentioned were ones that I ever had any relation to, sort of thing. And it, it had me, instead of growing up here in the Pittsburgh area in a little town called Latrobe, I grew up in California. Um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and one of the reasons why it does this is because it, it's looking for a likely answer. It's looking for something that sounds good. It, the algorithm is not necessarily built to deliver totally accurate results. It's it's meant to deliver a result that could be a likely result, um, which which itself can be very powerful. But uh, so what does that mean when I actually try to use it in terms of my job? Well, one of, one of my my job is content developer. You know, I'm I'm not a a coder actually in in you know software or anything. I write stuff. I'm I'm the guy who writes the marketing stuff. So um, one of the ways it can help me is in, in research and in coming up with ideas. Because one of the things it's good at oftentimes is coming up with ideas that you might not have had otherwise. Um, you're, you say, oh, well, I need to write a blog about this thing, you know, and it, it will come back with some bullet points. And, and, you know, oftentimes it's like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that one. That's really good. Um, so there, 
it's useful in that sense as a tool. But for right now, anyway, and again, I don't know what it's going to be like three years from now, but for right now, anyway, you need an experienced person, whatever you're doing, to be able to separate that hallucination stuff from the real useful stuff. Because um, if I'm working in, like just today, I was working in writing a blog for early childhood intervention. It's like people who work with kids who are missing their developmental milestones. And I've been working in that that field working with a company that does that for probably five years now and I know a lot of stuff about that so when ChatGPT comes back and says well between 18 and 24 months here's a particular developmental milestone to, to do with cognition you know I have the experience enough to be able to look at that and say nope that doesn't work that way at all <laughs> gonna ignore that one <laughs> um, so, so what I found is kind of have to look at what it says, but then it's like, oh, you know, that looks like a really good idea. I'm going to follow up on that. You, What you want to do is then you want to verify that. Go out and look at other sources. You know, look at other other websites, other other reference materials that can back that up or not back that up. So so it, it has that. But, but I really think at this point, um, and it's a really impressive tool. Um, uh, for instance, one of the things... Uh, one of the people that I work with today, they were making a video explaining people how to how, beginner users in WordPress. It's like, how do you just even log into WordPress and that sort of thing? And they just had a quirky idea in their head, and they, they said, I wonder if this could be done in rap. And so I went to ChatGPT and I said, write a rap about logging into WordPress. And it wrote this wonderful rap. Ah, <laughs> uh, rap, doing it. And, and so, so it's an extremely amazing tool. But you you have to have the experience to basically say this is this is good this is going to work I need to research this anybody who just says I'm going to write a blog for my client and I'm going to tell ChatGPT what to write and click a button and then paste that into the book they're going to get themselves in trouble at some point um, because they're going to basically be telling that customers clients stuff that has no bearing in reality because <laughs> it's going to part of it's going to be that's so Because I um there was I I listened to a Alan Alda's podca- podcast um I forgot the name oh no clear and vivid and okay. he, one of the things he did was talk to uh, a bunch of AI stuff um and and also some experts in AI. And what they said was they talked about this thing about if 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 it's going too long, that's when they get hallucinati- hallucinati- Oh have okay. hallucinations. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't say the word for some reason. Um, but that that's why. If it goes too long, if you just let it go, they it, it doesn't it doesn't have enough uh it doesn't. It's not creative. It's going by the information that's put in it. So it only has so much information to go by. So it starts taking stuff from different, probably novels or something, and just creating something mm-hmm. by stealing that stuff. And um, and but it's crazy. Like he actually was talking to this um, this AI. And he was saying how in love with him he is, and that he now belongs to him, and it was crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And he says, "Well, I'm going to pull the plug." 
He goes, you can't do that. Then you'll be accused of murder. You'll kill me. And he'll and he and he, and Alan goes, I'll deal with it. Unplug. <laughs> well, the thing, the thing, like, I I am interested in this in a variety of ways. One of them is just in job security, like for writers. I think there's a like I never thought as a writer, as a commercial writer, that there would be a tool that could replace parts of what I do. Um, because I didn't think it would get that good in, in my lifetime. But now I see that that's coming very fast. And as the editor of a magazine, I also work with authors who are, you know, a little bit concerned, more than a little bit concerned about this. And, you know, are people just out there going to ChatGPT and saying, here's my story, write this for me. Uh, and by the way, my experience in that is it'll be a pretty awful story and it was never going to get past our first line readers, whether we can tell it's written, whether it says it's written by an AI or we run it through as reading it doesn't matter. The stories that are coming out aren't anything that I would, would look at now. Um, but the, the interesting part is, so on one side, I've been in technology all my life, and here's the idea. So technology has always changed fast in our business. If we, if we didn't keep up with technology and learn new tools and learn stuff, that even in the last couple of years, we simply wouldn't have jobs anymore. Because in terms of web development, we had to learn HTML coding and that sort of thing. And then along came tools where, like WordPress, Wix, Weebly, where basically basic users could go into a system and click and drop and drag and make their, their website. So if we didn't keep up with technology and change what we do and increase our skills and find new angles to do things, we would simply be out of business. We'd be, we'd be done. And nobody stepped into that. No government, no agency, nobody ever stepped in and said, well, you know, your jobs are important, so we will halt this technological progress. You know, it's like you may, you may have a business, for instance, where you go out and you teach Palm Pilots or you teach, you know, BlackBerry how to use a BlackBerry phone. And because you make your living that way, we're going to make sure that those things are always there. That's not how reality works. No. Technology. It's, it's it's basically Palm Pilots. Who knows what those are? Um, you know, uh, or you know, H you code in HTML. Wonderful, wonderful ancient skill. Tried basket weaving too. Um, you know, because the the technology simply changes, and you have to change with it just to, to have a job. And you have to find a way how to bring value to that to that customer, so that so that there is a way thing that you can sell a value that you can bring. And oftentimes we've evolved now, as we still obviously do web development design, but our skills are often on the high-end design and understanding marketing and understanding branding and, and um, you know, consulting with businesses on whether they, you know, are running their business correctly in terms of how they interface with their their IT tools. And, and so you, you find ways to bring value to it because the old value is gone. Mm -hmm. And to some level, that's something that writers and artists are going to have to wrap their heads around too because I had a writer who was arguing to me, well, writers should be a protected class in society because, you know, they, they have a creative thing that they're uh, doing and it's a very human thing. And, and I agree with that and I sympathize and I understand how scared you are, but I'm also having a hard time not laughing at you <laughs> because nobody has ever protected me from anything. You know, as, as technology came along, we always had to learn how to use it and we always had to learn how to move to the next thing. And right now, I can see, like with ChatGPT, for me, in my job, uh, it is a useful collaborative tool, which, and I'm still learning it, and I'm still, because, you know, you say, well, you just type stuff in, and, and that's true, you can just type stuff in, but you can just type stuff into Word, too, it doesn't make you useful in any way. So I'm still learning 
to um, to use it as a tool. And what I'm seeing right now is I can get it to the point where it's it's actually saving me about maybe 25% of the time in which I might do something uh, because it, it can give me ideas, it can do some research, it can do some early drafts, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and then I can pass that savings on to my customer or I can do more work in the same same period of time because it because uh, one of the things when you're you're writing is obviously that getting started part where you kind of have to wrap your head around everything and you you kind of have to make you know test drafts and you kind of have to see how this is going to work and what tone you're going to use and all that and it can save some of that time just by just by throwing a bunch of ideas out there and, and you know you can look at it and say yeah well, I think I'll pursue that one um, and I you know so I need to create essentially templates for instructions for it and all that kind of stuff that will get me somewhere. But it, it, that's a tool, and that is a useful tool to society and to my customers and to my business. Um, it is not a useful tool where people could just type stuff in and, and use it because uh, you're going to get in a lot of trouble because it's hallucinating a bunch of stuff right now. But one of my concerns is, is this is that tool right now. What's the tool going to be like in five years? What's that tool going to be like in ten years? That's, um, it, that's why they're having the writer's strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's been happening for a while outside of AI. So, 
totally in sympathy with the, the, the Raider strike. Have no problem with that. Yep. Um, we're coming to the end. Do you have any events coming up that you want people to come to? Oh, um, no, I do not have any events coming up that, that I want people to come to. I've just been trying to survive day to day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, but, but we do have, like I said, we, we are launched. We, we are just launching it today. going to be up online tomorrow at go to uh, dreamforgemagazine.com. Um, uh, look for our latest online issue. Most of the stories are free. Lots of exciting stories that, that people can read there. Um, especially if you like witches, as I, as I was talking to you earlier, I've got somehow accidentally ended up with with three stories out of my mix that are that are very good takes on um, witches in in the modern world. So if you like witches, look for Dreamforge uh, Anvil issue twelve online. Okay, yeah, uh, actually, that's one of the one things I really like from the fantasy world. Um, okay, so you gave the website. Uh, could you give your social media so somebody can say hi? Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, I actually have to go online to figure out what that is. So hold on a second. Because okay. <laughs> we have a Twitter and we have social, uh, that Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, um, I know for sure. Um, on Facebook, we are just Facebook uh, slash Dreamforge Magazine. So Facebook, Dreamforge Magazine on Facebook. On Twitter, we are Dreamforge Mag, so not magazine, but uh, just Dreamforge, D-R-E-A-M-F-O-R-G-E-M-A-G, Mag, Twitter.com, Dreamforge Mag. Um, and on Instagram, we are Instagram slash Dreamforge Magazine. Um, Oh, and I would also encourage people to go to YouTube and uh, look for Dreamforge, the Dreamforge channel. Uh, we're going to try to do more of that in the coming year, but we have some uh, videos up there where we do some interviews, like a really cool set of interviews I got to do this year was with uh, Crystal Crawford, who is a writer who is a success on Kindle Vela. Kindle Vela is a um, uh, not a short story platform, but like a, a serial platform where, the, where every week you put up a piece of a serial and the serial joins together to become a larger overarching story and she talks about how that works what Kindle Vela is how you publish on Kindle Vela how you get successful on Kindle Vela and what the future of Kindle Vela would be like and we actually broke that up into three episodes um, and we're going to try to do more things like that and you know just talk about different subjects and do cool things on the Dreamforge channel so doing all these things is why I have no time or life <laughs> okay <laughs> And so it's like the old uh, magazine serials that they used to have. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very much like the old magazine serials, and each each writer builds up their their own serial. And um, Amazon through Kindle Vela um, uh, share like basically uh, you as a reader get to go on and read so many episodes. You get so like you sign up for Kindle Vela, you get so many essentially tokens or whatever it might be, and you can go read a bunch of stuff for free. Uh, and then if you find something that you like, you basically have to buy more tokens. Um, and then um, Amazon splits that up, both in terms of a, a larger pool where it just rewards its, its more uh, productive authors who are getting bringing more people into the system as readers. And, and then you also get a portion based on, on your specific readership kind of thing. And, and Crystal Crawford explains, explains all of that. But, um, yeah, um, it's, it's an interesting system. Cool. 
and I think that that's, that seems to be continuing to grow and uh, add new features. Uh, I also like the idea that it seemed to have been kind of invented in the Amazon world by some scrappy little team in a basement somewhere. So it's almost <laughs> like, can we try this idea? And, and then it just started to, to grow from there. But it, it, it has that feel of something that's put together by people who really kind of love what they're doing and want to try something new and, and do something interesting rather than this was developed for five years in the background you know, by Amazon and then launched to the world so that you know we've got our big corporate thing. It, it doesn't have that feel. It, it really has more the feel of, of cool, scrappy people doing cool stuff. Cool. I like scrappy people. Um, <laughs> we've come to the end. I want to thank you, Scott, for joining me and chatting with me and having a nice time. <laughs> I, I really appreciate coming to visit, and um, we will ask you to consider at some point coming back on our uh, show for uh, the Dream for Chinooks. We have an interview with you as well, which I just thought of, and we'll have you back as well at some point. So I always love talking to you. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you for the invitation. Okay. Um, All right. Anyway, thank you very much. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.